I invite you to follow in your Bible this morning. We're now in the 26th chapter of Matthew in this long time that we've been studying this gospel, wrestling with a difficult pair of chapters for the last six weeks in the Olivet Discourse. We've moved now into the events that take us to the cross and beyond. I remind you that as this has been a series of studies in Matthew, we've actually gone through two seasons of Easter in the midst of this series, and so I have dealt with, out of sequence, a number of the texts in chapter 26 and 27 and 28. So you're going to see the pace kind of quicken because I'm not going to repeat uh, texts that have been preached on as I've looked at Matthew the last couple of years. We looked at Jesus' anointing in Bethany here in this past Easter season and at a, a message from the Lord's Supper there. So we're already in the middle of chapter 26. As I would read this morning, verses 31 to 35, then I'm going to pick up later on in, in verse 69. These are tell of one thing with some events in between as we look at the denial of Simon Peter. Listen as I read God's Word, beginning at Matthew 26, 31. Jesus told His disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of Me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then, of course, we have the event of Gethsemane, and we'll come back to that, and the arrest of Christ, and the beginning of his Sanhedrin trial at the house of the high priest Caiaphas. And it was at that house that we're now concerned to read, beginning in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the Word of God. Samuel Sewell is an important name from early American colonial history, and yet a name I would guess most of you do not know. 
Samuel Sewell was a Puritan in Boston, not in the first wave of immigration that established the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but more what you would say of the second generation in the later 1600s. He actually studied for the ministry at Harvard College and obtained a master's degree in theological studies, intending to be a pastor. But he never was ordained to the ministry. Instead, he married the only daughter of one of the richest men in Boston. And as that man's son-in-law, there was no son, he began to manage his many interests in land holdings and shipping, and his father-in-law died not long after the marriage, and so he took over a considerable business interest and became very wealthy. Samuel Sewell was appointed a judge in the Massachusetts Circuit Court, the first real court founded in this land anywhere in America. Well, that made him a judge on a panel of judges when the bizarre hysteria known as the Salem Witch Trials took place in the year 1692. Samuel Sewell and about a half a dozen others heard cases of people accused, men and women, of being witches. They accepted highly disputed, specious evidence, which were really nothing but the accusations of neighbors with grudges against their neighbors in many cases. And yet, 20 people were sentenced, convicted, and hung as witches under the supervision of these judges. In subsequent years, Judge Sewell stood out from his judicial peers from that difficult and tragic time. He was a deeply spiritual man, I have no doubt, from his voluminous diaries that he was a real Christian. And one day, after searching his conscience for several years, he stood before the congregation of his church and read a very explicit penitential statement of his guilt and his confession of wrong in condemning anyone in the witch trials. Samuel Sewell repented first before God and then before his fellow citizens, and no other witch trial judge ever admitted the slightest fault out of that infamous time. It's interesting that you can trace the lives of those who were involved, and Samuel Sewell lived to be the age of 82, which was a grand old age in those days. And he died as a very respected man, beloved in his church and the whole community of Boston. Interestingly, most of the other witch trial judges ended their days in bitterness, defensiveness, and relative disgrace in the eyes of their fellow citizens. Samuel Sewell was the only one able to say, I failed. God forgive me. If the Bible was merely an invention of human fiction designed to somehow aggrandize Jesus Christ, I am sure that it would not be a book that would feature so many strong leaders, godly people, who failed as miserably as so many of them failed. David, Samson, Abraham, 
Moses. You can go on and on. And on the last night of Jesus' earthly life, not one, not a couple, but all 12 of the disciples of Jesus ran away from him and hid and completely abandoned him, just as he predicted they would. And their flight showed to us a spiritual weakness and fear and sin that we all had better know dwells in us. And we may succumb to it at some time or another. And at the center of that whole picture stands Simon Peter, the classic New Testament picture of a broken spiritual failure who repented. I think it behooves us to ask this morning, even before we start talking about Peter, what kind of failure haunts your life? Academic? Marital? Financial? A relationship that's on the rocks right now? A bungled career move that brought a lot of sorrow and misfortune to you and your family? Rash words that you wish you had some ability to take back? What kind of failure haunts you? But the more important question is, have you learned how much God loves a repentant failure? You see, the single greatest gift that the cross of Jesus Christ provides to any believer is that wonderful gift, forgiveness of sin. And yet all too often we go through life overestimating our own ability to stand firm with Christ on our own strength. Oh, I don't know what the rest of those people are going to see. Simon Peter's arrogance towards his fellow disciples. Oh, I'm sure they could fall, but not me. Ironically, it's only when we learn to stand beside Peter in his shame and his bitter weeping bowed under defeat but repentant before God, that we will know what the grace of Jesus Christ means in ministering to us forgiveness and healing and restoration precisely at the very place where we are the most broken. Today I'm going to frame the points of this sermon in terms of questions. The first question arises from Matthew 26, 31 to 35, and it asks you this. Do you realize that Christ knows you better than you know yourself? While walking to this Garden of Gethsemane after the upper room, we find here that Jesus told Peter, and the others heard it, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 31, adds some important words that that really help round out the picture of what takes place. Luke says these words from Jesus. Simon calls him by his weak human name, not Peter the rock. Simon the little stone. Satan has desired to have you in order to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
I have a picture in my mind of Jesus on that night of the cross, or be right before the cross, that is. A little bit like today a video production editor who has spools of video film before him that he's going to edit into a, a coherent whole to be shown. And, and here he sits at his technological console with maybe six or eight video monitors with different pictures and different scenes. And he sees all those scenes and he's deciding how will those things combine into the film he's about to make. Now, of course, that's not literally what Jesus was doing, but it's almost like that because it seems like nothing was about to happen that night or the following day that Jesus didn't already see on a monitor. He saw every character. He saw Pilate, Peter, Herod, soldiers, disciples, priests, women at the cross, his mother, everyone. And it's as if every word and act of theirs that was about to transpire was known to him and he could see it all about to take place in the sovereign plan of God unfolding according to divine purpose and foreknowledge and yet according to the responsible actions of the human players in the drama. How often do we really stop to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ knows every interwoven strand that will make up the cord of our lives before it is even woven into the rope? I like to think of Psalm 103, verse 14, a verse you will know, even if you may not know the reference. Psalm 103, 14 says, God knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. The context of what that psalm is about is the fatherly, parental compassion of God for our weakness when we are too naive to understand how foolish we are. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are but dust. I was thinking this week as I thought about my own arrogance and folly as a child of a scene I hadn't remembered for many, many years. I believe I was about 12 years old, riding in the car with my dad in a suburban area. And, you know, it was an area where you didn't drive really fast. And my dad, for some reason, seemed to be driving especially slow. I would guess he was probably going 20 to 25 miles an hour on this suburban street. And I had the feeling that we could have gone a lot faster. And and I said a very stupid thing, a very impertinent thing. I said, Dad... I could walk faster than you are driving. Well, I didn't have a kind of dad that whacked me. I probably deserved to be whacked for that, but I wasn't whacked. Instead, the car rolled to a stop. (laughs) And my dad said, okay, son, hop out. I'll drive the same speed I just was, and let's test your theory. (laughs) You see why I never forgot it? I came out of that with a very red face because running at my fastest pace, I could not go 20 miles an hour. And that's all he was driving, 20 miles an hour. I never forgot it. Dad taught me a good lesson. Peter thought it was impossible for him to betray Jesus, you know. Dad, I could walk as fast as you're driving. Lord, I won't betray you. Are you kidding Look at these 11 guys. I know every one of their weaknesses. I'm stronger than them. 
Why, they'll probably do just what you said, but I'm your most loyal friend. Count on it. I won't do it if I have to die. I remembered another scene from my life quite a few years after, 12 years old. I was in seminary, late stages of seminary, I think, in a pastoral ministry class. An excellent professor who had been a pastor was teaching us about some of the practical aspects of pastoring a church. One day he said, this is a test, but you won't be graded on it. Take out a sheet of paper, and I want you to think before you write, but here's what I want you to write. I want you to put on the paper one area of potential pastoral misconduct, whether it be ethical or moral or spiritual, one thing that you could think of a pastor doing wrong someday that you believe will be the the least likely thing for you to do, that you are least likely to fail in. I thought about that for a long time. And I finally wrote down misconduct with a woman. And then the professor, after everybody had written something down, read us this text about Peter and the warning that he got. And he said, now you will each know what you've written. You don't have to share it with anybody, but I want you to write down what will be some hedges of deliberate discipline and behavior that you will adopt to make sure that that thing that you have said you are least likely to do will not happen? Because you've said that you think you're nearly invulnerable, but I want you to think about what you're going to have to do to stay invulnerable. I never forgot that because I thought as a seminary student, pastors getting in trouble with women was something that happened in soap operas. I was one year into my first church when I faced a situation with a woman that caused me to run away from her faster than Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. I'm not kidding. And I remember going home and immediately telling my wife what had occurred. And I remember in my soul trembling over the fact that what I naively thought could not happen could have happened Maybe it would have happened if that wise pastor hadn't made me face something back there in seminary. Other pastors on our staff would tell you today about a sheet of paper I give them when they become an associate pastor here. It has something I derived over the years for myself, but I share it with them, a code of professional Christian pastoral conduct with women that I am constantly in my, on my guard about. Not because that failure has happened to me, but because I've looked into the enemy's leering face, and I know how clever he is, and I know how powerful he is, and I know that the very thing that I once wrote down and said, this will never happen, could be. Thank God it hasn't been, but could be the place where he would come after me and after my fellow pastors. The operative principle we're talking about here comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. And like Peter, any disciple of Jesus Christ, man or woman, parades gross ignorance if we claim we are self-sufficient. Oh, I'll never fall there. (laughs) 
What arrogance to imagine that we will not trip over the same human weaknesses that have ruined many other people. And what besides the God-given vigilance of watchful prayer and God's own daily sustaining grace is going to keep anyone standing firm morally or spiritually. Without the guardianship of the great shepherd of God's flock, we have nothing to defend us in our helplessness. And helplessness it really is. You see, Jesus Christ knows us better than we know ourselves. We don't believe that, but he does. He knows all the chinks in each individual's armor. He knows the time when your spirits are down or your circumstances are going wrong. He knows the rash promises you've made to yourself and other people. He knows how hard you're trying or not trying. And it's only, you see, when you discover somehow that he's right and that you are radically vulnerable to any potential failing, only when you discover that are you going to cling to the sustaining power of God in Christ and plead for his forgiving mercy when failure does come. I didn't say if it will, when it does. Because some kind of failure is going to come to you in some form. I will not ask for a show of hands of who in this room has never failed in a way that they grieve. If you are such a person, I actually pity you for your ability to raise your hand to that question. We all have failed, and we have failed God in many grievous ways. I love something that's in this text that's very subtle but important. Verse 32 doesn't, doesn't seem like it's really all that significant. As Jesus announced that they were going to fail, he slipped something into the midst of it after he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Do you see the importance of that? Jesus was saying, you will fail. You will be scattered and you will be ashamed. But you have a future. I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee and you'll follow me and meet me there. And you have a future as my disciples. Actually, he made it more explicit once again in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, when he said, Simon, when you turn back, that is after denying me, you're going to deny me, and after you turn back, strengthen my brothers. Jesus sees the failure, and thank God he sees the recovery for the one who repents. Peter would not only receive mercy for himself, he would be able to dispense it to others because he failed so miserably and so shamefully. Secondly, we look at the actual scene of the failure, and go ahead now to verse 69, follow there in your text and following. The place where Jesus was being interrogated, this is the first, you know, of several kind of mock trials. None of them were really legal trials. Inquisitions is what they were. At the house of the high priest Caiaphas, a grand house, we know how those houses were built, usually around an open courtyard with porches, And Jesus was probably on one of those porches with his interrogators. If you glance over the text from 57 to 68, you see what they were doing as they 
demanded, you know, it was, it was the kind of an interrogation that it was like, you know, have you stopped beating your wife yet? And he wasn't guilty of anything, but they were accusing him of everything in the world and spitting on him and striking him in the face. And there were people in the courtyard, servants and others. And the question that I see as we look here in the second place is this. What do you value even more than your relationship to Christ? There was a fire of some kind there, probably a charcoal brazier burning to keep people warm on a cool night. And although, of course, it was 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, the place was actually bustling with activity. John's gospel gives us the understanding that it was John who got Peter and himself admitted to that courtyard because he apparently knew somebody from that house and could speak at the gate and be admitted. Peter forgot all about the distinctive Galilean accent that he had. He and John were admitted there. They came as close as they dared to try to see what was happening to Jesus. And they even stood at the fire for a while, but they found no warmth at the fire's of unbelief. Just before this, we didn't deal with, and we will look at, the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest. But I remind you of what took place there as Jesus was arrested, the scene when Peter had pulled out his sword and without asking permission, used it and actually struck off the ear of one of the servants, the servant of the very high priest whose house he was in or courtyard of whose house he was in. So there was no lack of bravado in this man. Peter meant what he said. Lord, if they're going to come after you, they're going to have to go through me. A macho man. And now, what does it take? A mild inquiry from a servant girl. Let me tell you, she was probably a slave, actually. And she was a woman. And in that society, there was nobody on the lower rung of societal power or authority than a slave girl. And so now it doesn't take a big burly Roman guard or a temple guard. It takes a girl who's a slave to make a mild inquiry, weren't you with the rest of them in Galilee? And the macho man falls apart. He was like Elijah here. Remember Elijah when he had the face off with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel? There's no bolder scene in the entire Old Testament than Elijah mocking Baal with 800 prophets of Baal. Twice as many prophets of Baal as there are of you sitting here gathered around one man who mocked their God and brought down fire from heaven on a saturated altar. And then, right after that, when Queen Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you, Elijah ran for his life, terrified. Whether you're a high school student, whether you're a homemaker talking to a friend, vice president of a company talking to a sales associate, Isn't it amazing how Sunday morning determination to love Jesus Christ and serve him in your life can sort of dissolve 
in the right conversation and the right circumstance. It's just real easy to put it in your pocket and forget about it. Peter's first denial, you see, wasn't that bad a renunciation. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that didn't even include the name of Jesus. He just said, you're wrong. I, you're talking about something I don't have knowledge of. That's fairly mild. The second denial was worse. I don't know the man. But the third denial was a grand slam home run of personal betrayal. This was a Jewish man who took oaths in the name of God only on the rarest occasions, and when they took one, believe me, it was important. We don't have his exact words reported, but we would think we could reconstruct that Peter was saying something like, may God kill me and damn me forever if I am lying. I don't know him. That's what he said. What mattered to Peter more in that hour than Jesus Christ? Simple. His own skin. We value our own precious skin and our own precious reputation so much that we will trample on the head of our Savior just like this. And at that very moment when he could have looked maybe no farther away than the the back of this room is from me and maybe not even that far where his Lord was being spit on and punched in the face and railed at, here he was, Jesus' closest friend, yards away, vehemently denying that he knew him. In all of human experience before that morning, A rooster's crow never signified so much. Peter understood immediately, like a shaft thrust into his heart, what he had done. And Matthew's words are eloquent when he says he went out and wept bitterly. But we conclude this morning by asking a question based on verse 75 of this chapter. The question is, will your spiritual failure give birth to godly repentance? Because that is what we have here. Once again, Luke helps us. Luke 22.61 reports something else that Matthew does not mention. The two somewhat different viewpoints being told of the same incident. And there we read this important fact, that the Lord turned where he was. That's all he had to do was turn and looked at Peter. And then you put together with that Matthew's statement that he went out and wept bitterly. You might say that based just on what I've read in Matthew, we don't have any ground to know how this failure ended or, the, or even conclude that it was redemptive. All we have is a strong man hunched over in the dark, bitterly weeping. How can we say that it was redemptive? Well, there's one great fact that tells it to us, and that is that there's only one source for this whole incident to be possibly reported and then recorded in all four Gospels. What was that source? Peter. Simon Peter was the witness who later told testimony of this most shameful hour in his life, 
And we would think that is because he later understood that his greatest humiliation was also his badge of miraculous grace. To the end of his days on earth, Peter went around a much gentler man, a a much more humble. Read his epistles. He's a different man. He's not the same man as Peter in the Gospels. He went about preaching as exhibit A of the wonderful grace of God. 1 Peter 1.3, the opening of his first letter, he says, In his great mercy, God has given new birth to us. He's given us living hope. Just as in the case of David, that moral downfall with Bathsheba and the broken cries of David for forgiveness recorded in Psalm 51, the man was humbled. The self-sufficiency was completely crushed. And from this day forward, Peter was able to go to his Lord as an apostle and lead the church, saying, nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross. I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Secondly, we have that sad but knowing look of Jesus. I didn't see the look. There's only one person who did see it, Peter. What did Jesus look like? I often think about the way wives in particular can communicate with their husbands across the room. You've known the look, men. Uh, Sometimes it means get off the subject you're on or time to go or something like that. I don't believe the look that Jesus gave Peter was what you might think. It was not, I told you so. I don't believe that. I think like a laser beam, that look said one thing. I love you in spite of what you just did. And that look saved Peter's life. Because if you will examine what comes after this, at the beginning of chapter 27, you'll find a disciple who didn't receive that look. And he too wept tears. But his tears were only of selfish remorse, and so the only recourse for Judas was a noose. Peter might have ended up there if it hadn't been for that look. John 21, of course, tells of the restoration scene, the grand breakfast on the beach when Jesus recommissioned his disciple. But I'm not going to go there today. We don't need to go that far ahead of the story. All we need to see is that this brokenness, this weeping, was the weeping of a Christian who failed without ceasing to be a Christian. And the lesson is we can fail badly and turn in the midst of our ruin to the one who is alone sufficient to save us. We know that this weeping was what the Bible elsewhere calls godly sorrow that works repentance, not worldly sorrow alone. And we know that God hears us when we have that same sorrow. Sorrow that says, oh God, you were right about me. I've just looked so stupid God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake. He looks tenderly on those who come that way. His his look reclaims children even today. The single greatest gift of God is forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Without his costly forgiveness, there would be no salvation, no reconciliation to God, no victory over death, no prospect of heaven, no recovery from any failure we ever commit. Thank God that in Christ, he fulfilled what he prophesied for us in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed. He will not break. A smoldering wick. A life that has the last little spark remaining. He will not snuff it out. When you fail your Savior, and you will, you will, may you pray with David and with Peter in the words of Psalm 51, Lord, may the bones you have broken rejoice before you. Lord, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And he will. He really will. Father, thank you for imperfect followers of you all over the Bible. Thank you for Peter's bitter tears in the midst of the failure that's either behind us or maybe just ahead of us. Help us, O God, to weep that way. For weeping might endure for a night, but you are the God who brings joy in the morning. Through Jesus Christ, amen.